0: This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society, on the web at myfloridahistory.org. I'm Ben Broatmarkle, and coming up on the program, we'll visit three historic sites in Flagler County that date back to the 1700s and 1800s. The Bulow
1: Plantation was one of the largest plantation enterprises in territorial Florida. It was very successful because its major crop was sugar.
0: We'll discuss some lesser known but influential women in Florida history, Throughout Florida's long and and diverse history, women have played a very important role in the development of our state and the development of our territory. And we'll talk about the formerly all-black Lincoln High School in Gainesville. All that ahead on Florida Frontiers.
2: Three
0: historic homesteads from the 1700s and 1800s can be seen in Flagler County, north of Daytona and south of St. Augustine. Malacompra and the Bulow Plantation are in ruins while the lodge at Prince's Place still stands. In 1816, Joseph Hernandez was given a Spanish land grant to establish the Malacompra Plantation. Malacompra means bad purchase in Spanish. Although others had not been successful on the land, Hernandez was. When Florida became a United States territory in 1821, Hernandez was the first Spanish representative in the U.S. Congress and helped to have Tallahassee named the state capital. The Malacompra plantation ruins were first excavated by archaeologists in 1999. Cisco Dean is with the Flagler County Historical Society.
2: The really neat thing about Malacompra is when they did the archeological dig, normally when the archaeologists come in, they dig, write everything down, cover everything back up and leave. Well, here we have the actual ruins. They're covered. Uh, you can walk around and you can see the various parts of the houses, the wells, and there's uh, interpretive signs all along. Carl
0: Laundrie is chair of the Flagler County Centennial Committee. The site is, is
3: uh, well, for a number of years, there was a trailer park there, they, and the county bought Bing's Landing, and uh, then they discovered the site and they started doing, they've done several archeological projects there, and they built that, well, it's a roof over, they built a big platform over, it, and there's interpretive sites there today, so it's, it's a, a point of interest. People stop, look, you know, and it's also a busy park. There's a restaurant there, and a boat launch, and people come down there the fish. It's a combination of history and recreation.
0: China that Joseph and Anna Marie Hernandez used at Mala Compra is displayed in the lobby of the Flagler County Courthouse and Public Service Building in Bunnell. Cisco Dean and Carl Laundrie.
2: Now, how we acquired that was really interesting. Now, I do a lot of genealogy, and this lady came in one day and said she was a, a descendant of Hernandez, and I said, yeah, sure. But when I started talking to her, she actually was, and she had uh, two pieces of China she said it was prepared when he was a representative of congress he used it up there and her mother had just died and she acquired this china and she said i have written everybody in my mother's uh, address book she said people i don't know i just wrote them just to let them know my mom died and she said uh, i got a letter last week uh, from a lady in atlanta who is also a relative and uh, i mentioned the china and she said she had some china too. So uh, we actually got it from like
3: uh, four different family members. The last time the dishes that he used in, in Washington when he, when he served were rushed out of Flagler County onto the wagon because he knew the Indians were coming to burn the plantation. Well, several sets of those dishes are now on display in the Government Services Building, and I just thought it was kind of interesting. Last time they left Flagler County, they left on a, a wagon because the Indians were coming, and the family came back and brought us back the dishes and some of his jewelry, uh, tie, clasps, and cuffs. They're all on display in the, in the Government Services Building. It's uh, really interesting.
0: The Mala Compra Plantation was destroyed during the Second Seminole War of the 1830s. The same fate was in store for the Bulow Plantation. In 1821, Charles W. Bulow purchased 9,000 acres of land in what is now Flagler County. Local historian Al Hadid is the Flagler County attorney. The Bulow Plantation
1: uh, was one of the largest plantation enterprises in territorial Florida. It was very successful because its major crop was sugar. Sugar was very, very expensive um, and very prized. And so, I mean, it was, remember now, the sugar was also used to make rum. So, so it had a lot of different uses, sweeten the food and, you know, enjoy your, enjoy your repast, right, with, with, with a drink of rum. So he's very, very successful. And uh, however, unfortunately, that success suffered the fate of the Seminole-Indian Wars because his plantation, like many of the others uh, in northeast Florida, were burned by the Seminoles. Now, the reason they were burned was not because the Seminoles disliked Mr. Bulow, because actually he got along with them. Mr. Hernandez's plantation burned. He got along with them, they traded with them. The reason why they were burned is that when the federal troops came in to fight the Seminoles, the idea was, Andrew Jackson's idea, was he wanted to ship them all west, get all the Seminoles out of Florida. Well, they adopted a strategy that wherever the federal troops went, to bivouac, to supply depots, their hospitals, whatever it was, they would burn those places so the federal troops couldn't use them again. So unfortunately, you know, the unintended consequences, uh, you know, of that war was a great deal of wealth was lost.
0: As Carl Laundrie explains, both Mala Compra and the Bulow Plantation had a famous visitor. John J.
3: Audubon came here and he stopped at Hernandez and Hernandez and Audubon eh, didn't get along so well. But uh, young Bulow, they hit it off pretty good. On Christmas Day, and I don't remember the date, but on Christmas Day, they struck out from Hernandez's plantation and went to visit John Bulow. John J. Audubon and his entire entourage walked from there, and that's about 12, 15 miles. They walked on Christmas Day to uh, Bulow's plantation. And uh, Bulow and Audubon, I think, became drinking buddies. They... They had a grand time. They took them all around, and Audubon's uh, accounts uh, are of early Flagler County area. Bulow took it over as a young man. I think he was about 20 years old when he took over the plantation, 19 or 20 years old, and built it up to quite the largest sugar plantation on the east coast of Florida. Had a huge coquina structure there. Had lots of indigo, rice, again, and also sugar cane. Bulo traded
0: with the Seminole Indians and got along with them so well that he tried to defend them from Andrew
3: Jackson's troops. He fired a cannon at the Florida militia because he, he was not happy with what they were doing. And he ended up getting arrested and held in his own house while they used the uh, uh, plantation for a fort. And when they decided it was too dangerous for them to stay there, they removed him back to St. Augustine. He was under house arrest in St. Augustine. And uh, in February, they say he saw a big red glow in the sky, and they determined that was when the Seminoles burned Bulow Plantation.
0: While both Malacompra and the Bulow Plantation were destroyed during the Second Seminole War of the 1830s, the Adirondack-style lodge known as Princess Place still stands. That land was originally settled in 1788 by a Menorcan named Francisco Pellicer.
4: He was part of the Menorcans that were indentured Servants at the Turnbull Colony in New Smyrna. And he uh, was actually the, the same gentleman that led the uprising that moved the Minorcans or led them from New Smyrna to St. Augustine and brought that Menorcan influence there along with the Daddle Pepper.
0: Wanda Laundry was a longtime guide at Princess Place Preserve, Al Hadid. The hero of the
1: Minorcans, was the one that settled that. Francisco Pellisier, by the way, for whom Pellisier Creek is named. Francisco Pellicer was a young Menorcan at the, at the Turnbull colony and he was about 18 or 19 years old. And they had, the folks had reached their end. The, the overseers were very cruel, people were being whipped. There were, there were lots of tales of horror that were documented later uh, by the authorities and uh, they somehow selected him or maybe he selected himself that he was gonna walk by himself to St. Augustine up the, old, what the then Old King's Road to the British authorities to plead the case of the Menorcans.
0: The governor of British Florida allowed the Menorcans to leave the Turnbull colony in New Smyrna and relocate to St. Augustine. At the end of the American Revolution in 1783, Florida returned to Spanish control. Pellisier was given a Spanish land grant to grow citrus. About a century later, the property was purchased by Henry Cutting.
1: Cutting is is part of the folks that Henry Flagler brought to Florida and who discovered Florida as just this wonderland. And he decided that he wanted to build a compound. Uh, Now he did it in the Adirondack camp style because he's from New England. And he had a summer uh, similar complex in the Adirondack mountains where it was cool. So it's the only example of Adirondack camp style architecture in the state of Florida and it persevered over the years. It was built with native materials, uh, very strong. I mean, through storms and hurricanes, uh, it's still
0: standing. Cutting met Angela Mills in St. Augustine and married her in 1888. The couple entertained frequently at their lodge, but after four years, Cutting died. Angela married stockbroker John Lorimer Warden in 1901, but 19 years later, they had a bitter divorce. Angela kept the lodge that would become known as Princess Place, Wanda Laundrie and Cisco Dean. In
4: 1922, she was in Paris, and that's when she met Boris Sherbatov. And he was one of two families of Russian royalty that had claimed to the Russian crown during the Bolshevik Revolution. So they were married a year later in 1923.
2: He is a, a man with a title and no money. And Angela is a woman with money and no title, so it was sort of a marriage made in heaven. Now, uh, my mom told me that uh, she would have children out to the plantation, and they, at Christmas time, there'd be a big Christmas party, and she would give them a book, and I have one of those books at home.
4: Since he was a prince, then she acquired the title of princess, and after a couple of years, uh, he did change his name from Sherbatov to Sherbetal. It's speculated that he did that to um, kind of avoid detection. He was afraid of assassins when they would come to the lodge. He preferred to spend his time in the Ponce León Hotel in St. Augustine because he was afraid of being isolated at the lodge. But uh, so it was Princess and Prince Boris Chervitel. And that marriage lasted until 1949. And at that time, he passed away in New York after a brief illness.
0: Princess Angela sold her lodge in 1954 to Louis Wadsworth and she died two years later in St. Augustine. The lodge at Princess Place and the ruins of Mala Compra and the Bulow Plantation are all in Flagler County, north of Daytona and south of St. Augustine. The This is Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. I'm Ben Brookmarkle. Visit us anytime on the web at myfloridahistory.org to listen to archived editions of this program, watch archived episodes of our public television series, Florida Frontiers, read the Florida Frontiers blog articles, and much more. That's myfloridahistory.org. The Florida Historical Society recognizes the contributions of women throughout the year in a variety of ways. For example, FHS manages the historic Rossiter House Museum and Gardens, home of pioneering businesswoman Carrie Rossiter, stages the theatrical presentation Female Florida, Historic Women in Their Own Words in venues around the state, and presents an annual Outstanding Woman in Florida History Award each year at the annual meeting and symposium. Joining us now is Ben Biassi, Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Cocoa to discuss some lesser-known but influential women from Florida history throughout Florida's
5: uh, long and and diverse history, women have played a very important role in the development of our state and the development of our territory. Uh, In fact, in 1982, the state of Florida decided to put that into uh, a state statute, uh, creating what is now known as the Florida Women's Hall of Fame. Uh, And that was created to, quote, honor women who throughout their lives and efforts have made significant contributions to the improvements of life for women and for all citizens of Florida, end quote. Uh, And every year there are new inductees uh, who are uh, welcomed into that group. And it includes some really uh, fascinating women. Of course, uh, f- people like Marjorie Stoneman Douglas and, and even Marjorie Kennon Rawlings, most Floridians would automatically recognize uh, the, the names of, the, of those women and understand and recognize their contributions to Florida history. But there are so many other women who are uh, members of this Hall of Fame that, that don't necessarily get that same uh, recognition. And
0: two of the women we're discussing today were elected to public office, Right.
5: Yeah, that's correct. Uh, first, I want to talk about a woman by the name of Ruth Brian Owens, and, and Ruth Owens was actually the daughter of um, William Jennings Bryan, who uh, uh, ran for, for president several times, uh, was involved in South Florida politics throughout his life. Uh, Ruth came to Florida in 1919. She had been married several times, and uh, after her her, uh, last husband had passed away, she and her children moved to be closer to her family. It was actually while she was living in Florida, she decided to become involved in politics after her father died in 1925. And she was actually the first woman uh, elected to the U.S. House of Representatives from Florida. In fact, she was one of only a few women representing the, the entire South at that time period. Uh, now, she represented Florida's fourth district, which at that time stretched all the way from Jacksonville to Key West. So you can imagine the the uh, varying needs of, of many of her constituents. But uh, one of the hallmarks of, of her time in office, which spanned from 1928 until 1933, uh, was the fact that she was uh, uh, dedicated almost to a fault to the needs of her constituents. She spent quite a bit of time listening to and responding to the needs uh, of the, the people of the East Coast of Florida. Uh, in fact, a great example of that is that she was um, quite a bit opposed to uh, repealing uh, the, the prohibition law, the 18th Amendment to the U.S. Constitution, uh, which uh, made it illegal to, to sell alcohol. Um, personally, she was um, in support of the 18th Amendment. However, her constituents overwhelmingly voted for the repeal of that, that amendment. So uh, in keeping with the, the needs and wants of her constituents, she went against her own personal convictions and voted in favor for repealing that act. Now, she also went on to uh, serve as one of the first women Uh, to hold a a, a diplomatic position. She was a U.S. diplomat to Denmark for a number of years after she left the U.S. House of Representatives. She was also uh, the first woman on the uh, Foreign Affairs Committee while serving in the U.S. House of Representatives. Uh, Now, I also want to mention another woman who served on more of a local level, uh, M. Athelay Range, and and many people in South Florida might recognize that name. She was actually born in Miami in 1915, uh, the the daughter of Bahamian immigrants, uh, and she worked in a lot of the African-American communities where she grew up in Miami. And she first got involved because she saw the uh, uh, inequalities that, that existed within the public school system in Miami. Now, her children went to a, a segregated public school in the 1940s, uh, but she she noticed that uh, there were no permanent Uh, buildings within the school, they had inadequate water supply, they didn't have lunch, uh, all kinds of of serious issues. So she got involved politically and and actually approached the city commission and had a lot of these things change and it was actually not until 1965 that she ran for the city commission. Uh, She lost in 65 but in 66 was appointed and then subsequently was reelected twice. And she fought throughout her entire political career and then later throughout the rest of her life uh, to better not only the lives of, of women within her, uh, the city of Miami, but also for uh, uh, African Americans and those who she felt were underrepresented by the city at that time.
0: We're also looking at two women today recognized for their humanitarian work.
5: Yeah, that's right. And an exceptional example is a woman by the name of Ertha Mary Magdalene White. Now, she's a native of Jacksonville. She was born in 1876. Her adopted mother, Clara White, was actually the uh, born into slavery, was a daughter of slaves herself, uh, was born in, essentially in, in uh, into poverty, but her mother fought very hard. Uh, Ertha's father, her adopted father, died when she was young, so her mother really raised her on her own. She worked very hard and instilled in Ertha a sense of uh, humanitarian cause. They were um, very pious uh, individuals, but they also believed that any person living in Jacksonville deserved this basic human uh, dignity. And, and she fought very hard throughout her life to provide that for, for those who she felt were um, very underrepresented and, and the underprivileged uh, folks living in and around Jacksonville and Duval County. Now, Ertha was also a very successful businesswoman. A lot of people um, don't know that. Uh, she's known for, for creating uh, what is known as a Clara White Mission, which was named after her mother, which still exists today. And it served the uh, homeless and the needy throughout the Jacksonville area. Um, but because she was such a successful businesswoman, she funneled all of that money into her humanitarian causes. Uh, She created an orphanage in the early 20th century in Jacksonville. She created a uh, retirement home for, this is long before any kind of social security administration, uh, for those who could not afford to retire, but also were unable to work. Uh, And up until the very last days of of her life, she was almost 100 years old when she passed away. She fought and she put everything she could into uh, helping those who were in need throughout her community. And lastly, I want to talk about uh, Roxy O'Neill Bolton, and uh, Bolton was, was interesting, again, for her uh, her work to uh, represent uh, women throughout Florida, but throughout the United States, she was actually uh, uh, the uh, founder of the Florida chapter of the National Organization of Women. Uh, she personally fought to have Congress pass the Equal Rights Amendment, or to push for the Equal Rights Amendment, which unfortunately did not uh, eventually pass. But she was the uh, loudest proponent, at least from Florida, to to help uh, and and actually personally met with President Nixon to create the uh, Equal Rights Proclamation in 1972. Uh, she organized the a women in distress uh, clinic, which offered local assistance and housing to uh, women who, who were uh, victims of abuse, um, those who were also uh, uh, involved in substance abuse issues, which, again, still exists today. She organized marches uh, throughout the state to... Um, help uh, uh, bring and shed light to uh, rape victims who were um, not being properly uh, represented within the, the justice system in South Florida uh, and again throughout her life she pushed um, both state and, and local officials to um, not only realize that that these populations live and exist in Florida but that they were um, in in need of assistance uh, through through both government need and, and through private organizations. So you know all four of these women in their own way have helped to promote and develop the um, the betterment of, of Floridians, uh, not only for their communities, but, but for uh, uh, those uh, people
0: living throughout the state.
5: Thanks, Ben. Sure, thank you.
0: Ben DiBiase is Director of Educational Resources for the Florida Historical Society and archivist at the Library of Florida History in Coco. This is Florida Frontiers. Before desegregation, Lincoln High School in Gainesville was an all-black school. Mike Burke, a student in the public history program at the University of Central Florida, has this report.
6: The old Lincoln High School building was recently added to the National Register of Historic Places. And I think the same is in the works for a. Quinn Jones, who was the principal at Lincoln during Jim Crow for several years. I think his house is also going to be preserved in a similar manner.
7: That was Katherine Palmer with the State Archives in Tallahassee, Florida. She spoke to us about Lincoln High School in Gainesville, Florida. Lincoln High School was the all-black high school in Gainesville. It first opened under the Jim Crow years of Florida's segregated school system. Miss Palmer researched the history of the school since integration. Her final research appears in the summer 2016 issue of the Florida Historical Quarterly in an article titled, Losing Lincoln, Black Educators, Historical Memory, and the Desegregation of Lincoln High School in Gainesville, Florida. She told us about the problems that faced Lincoln High since the integration of the local school system.
6: See. The story of Lincoln High School is so interesting because white-controlled school board in, of Alaska County, where Gainesville is located, did vote to close Lincoln High School, which was um, a very well-known black high school in Florida. There were a lot of really great teachers there, and it was really above average as far as the academic uh, curriculum that it had to offer for in Florida. Um, But when it closed, the community was so upset because the school board wanted to close it and reopen it as a vocational school, which they kind of took as an insult, and rightfully so. This new struggle in the late 60s and 70s after this was about maintaining Black culture within this new integrated society. And that struggle is just something that is much more difficult to quantify because you don't have um, the kind of monumental pieces of, of legislation that you can link to like you could earlier. But this this is a struggle that continues today.
7: Miss Palmer tracked down local activists and community leaders to learn more.
6: The question really became, how are we going to preserve our history so that the perspective of the people that went to Lincoln High School and taught at Lincoln High School is preserved and it doesn't get overwhelmed by this prevailing narrative that Even though it closed, everything was fine, and and everyone now has access to equal education because think, let's look around us, and we know that's just not true today. So uh, maintaining Black cultural representation in an integrated world became uh, very much the the new struggle after that classic civil rights movement of the 1950s and 60s. And within the past few years, uh, there's been articles written about how important Lincoln High School was. Um, to the black community during school desegregation about how now the black community suffers by not having as many black teachers in classrooms, and how having uh, black teachers as role models at Lincoln High School was such a boon to the black community uh, during that time.
7: She also explains the role that the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program at the University of Florida played in preserving this history.
6: There's the Samuel Proctor Oral History Program on the University of Florida. This is a a pretty well-established program, and they continue to seek out members of the African-American community in Gainesville to capture their memories of segregation, of integration, even after integration. And what comes up over and over in those interviews is Lincoln High School and how important Lincoln High School was and still really is to the black community. I and mean, the people that came out of Lincoln High School, you've got a lot of judges, lawyers, doctors, uh, people that are like pillars of the community in Gainesville and then the larger Florida national stage. So Lincoln High School is still very much a part of the memories of the African-American um, community. In fact, in 2012, the president of the Lincoln High School Alumni Association wrote a book about the history of Lincoln High School. The daughter of Thomas Wright, who was the leader of the local NAACP in in the 1960s and actually filed suit against Alachua County for over-school desegregation, his daughter wrote a book about her memories of that experience, I think, in 2012 as well.
7: That was Katherine Palmer, and I'm Mike Burke, a student with the Public History Program at the University of Central Florida.
0: You've been listening to Florida Frontiers, the weekly radio magazine of the Florida Historical Society. Join us right here again next week. Until then, find us on the web at myfloridahistory.org and on Facebook at Florida Historical Society. Production assistance for Florida Frontiers comes from Bendy Biassi and Robert Casanello. The program is edited by John White. Have a great week. I'm Ben Brokmarkle.